Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, canine welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I'm really excited to be rounding out our discrimination um, and generalization discussion with Paul Bunker of Chiron Canine. Paul has been on the podcast before, so many of you all are already familiar with him. And Paul has a couple different projects that he's going to be highlighting for us as far as generalization and discrimination and how those things play into getting successful projects off the ground. So, Paul, take it away. Hi, Kayla. Uh, thanks for the uh, invitation to come back on again. Very much appreciated. And I'm happy to talk today about discrimination and generalization. Um, first of all, a little background to um, my learning experience with generalization. So, 23 oh, years ago, I had a project um, it was looking for a particular type of TNT explosive in the Balkans. And we'd received Yugoslavian TNT and imprinted the dogs on those. And we were training the dogs to very trace amounts of the explosive because they had to find TNT which had naturalized buried within the environment. So the dogs were really good, uh, achieving 100% detection down to 0.025 of a gram of TNT. Um, now, some of the dogs, after a couple of years of work, they were brought to the United States to support a uh, US military-based project. And when we arrived, we received some TNT from the US um, ammunition supply and it looked different. The TNT we'd been working on was a yellow color. And the one we received is more kind of a green color. But, you know, in my mind, TNT is TNT. And the dogs were really good at finding TNT, so I didn't see any issues. Well, we placed the uh, explosive out, the TNT, and worked the dogs. And none of them would respond on the odor. And we had six dogs. And that was very confusing to me. We spent... 
I don't know, less than half a day imprinting quickly, pay on sniff, typical processes. And by the end of the day, those dogs were responding 100% on even trace amounts of that TNT. So this confused me as to why I had six dogs that were really good at detecting TNT. And then I presented another example of what I thought was exactly the same substance and the dogs couldn't generalize. And it was um, Dr. Goldblatt from, I think he's uh, Tel Aviv University that had written a paper and talked about an expert nose and saying, you know, if you train a dog on one particular odor, regardless if there's other examples of that odor that exist, the dog will become so specialized that it'll only respond on that particular odor. And once I learned this, then we started to generalize the dogs across all um, examples of TNT and never encountered that problem again. So that was kind of a big learning curve for me that generalization is very important. And I think you know, a lot of organizations, whether you're law enforcement, military, conservation, etc., the limitation is that your targets are uh, dependent on you sourcing them. And sometimes the source might be from a zoo, for instance. And therefore, the potential exists that you're only training a dog to find a captive bred example of your species. And you know, that scat, if you're using scat, for instance, the, the odor of the scat is dependent on the environment that the reptile is living in or species, whatever it is, the food it's being given, any medications it's receiving, etc. And that odor is potentially very different from wild species. And therefore, you could have a generalization problem. Now, the amount of odors required for generalization is, as far as I'm aware, um, not yet known. And I know uh, Dr. Nathan Hall gave a presentation at Canine PsyCon and was talking about uh, generalization. And there is research ongoing, but I don't think anyone, no one has come up with an exact number. And I don't think you ever would because, you know, each dog's an individual and some dogs being pedantic and some dogs being liberal, they will make choices based on their learning experiences and the odor presented to them. I generally say you want at least three targets, and I say at least because you want as many as possible. I know others have said four or five examples of different targets. So I think you just want to get as many different examples of your source target to uh, allow for generalization. But that also underlines the fact that discrimination can um, exist, whether it's on purpose, because you particularly want a dog to only find one specific odor, or it could be that inadvertently you uh, train the dog to absolute discrimination because you're only presenting one example of a target. One of the biggest um, challenges potentially you face is sourcing your targets and this is where and it developing your training plan is extremely important first of all you need to determine do i need generalization or do i need a discrimination once you've determined what you actually need then you need to look at the sources and determine what how many or where can i source different types of the same target odor so I can get generalization, or 
if I want discrimination, I need to really ensure I have the exact target I'm looking for so that I make the dog the expert at discriminating that target from others. Once you've established the targets you need, then generally I imprint, or I, not generally, I do imprint in a clean environment. I get as clean a source of the target as possible, and I imprint in a clean environment. I want the dog to 100% understand the headspace of the target. Those of you that have either read my workbook or have heard me give presentations before, I talk about the principles of the three-leg stool, which is... Um, the principles I use in the imprint process. The first one is that I use trace amounts of a target, but the other two talk about generalization and discrimination. And the, with the generalization, we talk about the act or process whereby the learned response is made to a stimuli similar to, but not identical with, the conditioned stimuli. And if I want generalization across targets, at the end of the initial imprint period, I start my generalization process within a lab or room or whatever you want to call it type controlled environment before I move outside. With discrimination, it is the ability to detect the target despite it being mixed with other materials. And this is slightly different from maybe the discrimination that um, you've heard before. It's just a term I use in that one of the steps I do take during imprinting is to take the target odor and I mix it with examples of the environment or distractors. What I want the dog to understand is how to pick out its odor when it's been mixed in with other odors. One of the reasons for this is if you're continually presenting clean clinical examples of your target, that is potentially not what you're going to find in real life. Because if you're going into the field and obviously you're working in woods and um, there's animals and insects and um, all the leaves from the vegetation and grasses, etc., they all intermix with your target odor and they can change it particularly if it's buried, because the target odor moving through sand or soil or whatever the substrate is, gets filtered and the headspace presentation is different. And we also want the dog to be able to actually pick out its target from within other odors. So when I talk about discrimination within the three-leg stall, what I'm talking about is that act of mixing my target with other odors to teach the dog that there's a range of headspace profiles that their target could potentially present itself in, and it is still target. Now, we obviously have to add to that discrimination in that it might be a discrimination between different species. Um, it might be I'm training a dog to find lizard scat, and I'll use snake um, or other reptile scats as a discriminator, which I expect the dog to ignore. That is also discrimination, obviously. Um, so you can class that discrimination the same as I would with mix, or I do, the same as I would when I'm mixing my target within distractors. So that's kind of the background to my approach to generalization discrimination. It's planning my project, it's working out how this uh, fits into the process, and I start very early on in the imprint process. Once the dog understands odor, I start to then either generalize or discriminate. And even if I'm generalizing, the odor is mixed with other odors to get that discrimination from the environment. 
Yeah, I have a, and maybe we'll get into this with your examples, but when you're talking about mixing the odor with odors from the environment, are you doing that by going out and collecting odors from the environment, or are you doing that by um, placing the odor in kind of naturalistic environments and letting the environment kind of do the training? The first steps is actually collecting um, examples of the environment and bringing it into the lab and then I mix it in mason jars and I'm using whether it's lineup or carousel or whatever I'm doing. And that's where the dogs receive its first presentations of that change of target in a controlled environment so that in some way I can control what the dog is being exposed to. So it might be that I'm going to start with a very neutral um, odor, maybe some sticks that's mixed in with the target and then I'll move to leaves, and then I'll bury it under some um, native soil, and I'll start to increase the complexity of the odor that's actually mixed with that distractor, or the distractor that's mixed with the odor. So again, we're getting different changes of presentations of the same headspace, and the dog has to discriminate which which um, distractor contains its target. In the other containers, the other pots, there will be examples of the environmental odors as well. So today, for instance, we collected some bamboo, some leaves, some sand for the um, for a project I'll talk about in a moment. The first steps will be that I'll have clean odor out, and then as distractors in separate pots, I'll have leaves and bamboo and sticks, and then and sand, and then. Um, the next day, potentially, I will put the target odor in with some sticks. And then the next day, it would be with leaves. And the next day, with sand, buried. So I'm starting to increase the complexity. But also, at the same time, there is the same distractors in the pots as distractors. So the dog has to ignore examples of the leaves, but only respond on the example of the leaves that contains its target. Hopefully, that's a bit clearer. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And I, I love that setup and I love how clean it is. And I also, what I'm really liking here is how similar this seems approach-wise to some of the approaches that were described in early episodes of this um, discrimination series that we're doing. Um, because it's nice to hear that a lot of the folks who are thinking really hard and cleanly about doing this cleanly are doing it in similar ways. That to me suggests that um, they're there is actually more uh, of an understanding of how to do this well than maybe I initially thought, which is exactly what I was hoping to find. So why don't we get into, um, if you're ready, some of the, uh, the case study examples that you've got ready for us. Yeah, sure. So the first one I'll quickly uh, just mention, because it is a published paper, and it's uh, open source, so people are very welcome, obviously, to go online. Just You can download it. It was Dr. Mallory DeChant, uh, myself and Dr. Nathan Hall of Texas Tech University. And what had happened here was that we deployed up to Canada with some oil spill response dogs after a major incident up there. And the dogs had achieved over 10,000 confirmed alerts or responses on oil. But some of those responses on oil were very small amounts that in a typical spill response would not need cleaned up. Um, because biodegradation and bacteria would actually work on those small examples of oil and just they would disappear into the environment um, and they're not worth 
being actioned on. However, if a dog responds on an example of oil, it has to be recorded, data recorded, GPS, photographs, measurements, all those sort of things, and reported at the end of the day and collected and disposed of, even though it didn't need to be if it was just a human survey. So one of the questions from that was, well, can you not calibrate a dog to actually only respond on a particular level of a target? I had the belief that we could. Uh, we received some funding from uh, American Petroleum Institute to investigate, and Dr. Nathan Hall and his team um, very graciously said they would take on that research. The paper is called Stimuli or Stimulus Control of Odorant Concentration, Pilot Study of Generalization and Discrimination of Odor Concentrations in Canines. Um, and it was published in on the 18th of January 2021. And basically, in this study, what they did was they trained dogs to a particular level of an odorant. They then saw or studied how far below that level, that threshold they've been trained to, the dogs will naturally generalize. And what they found was the dogs will naturally generalize to tenfold below and then start to ignore the target. So one of the steps they then took was to actually reinforce the discrimination of the target based on amount. So the dogs were taught a particular threshold. When, they got when the odor was presented at tenfold below or lower and the dog ignored it, it was reinforced with a reward, a treat. Ooh, if, uh -huh. if it responded on the threshold it had been taught to actually um, respond on, it was reinforced with a reward or a treat. In this way, the dogs were able to be calibrated to discriminate based on amount. And the dogs did really well. You know, it was a pilot study. There was only four dogs in the actual study, but it demonstrated that the potential exists that you can actually train a dog to discriminate based on quantity or based on the odor profile amount that's being presented. And I, I kind of knew that that would happen because we had a limitation in one of the canine schools I was uh, an instructor at for six years. So a lot of experience, hundreds and hundreds of dogs went through our program. But we was not allowed to alter the size of the target that was issued to us from the ammunition supply. And like C4 explosive, for instance, comes in a one and a quarter pound block. That's exactly how we had to train the dogs and nothing else, one and a quarter pounds. And what I saw was when we went to the field phase in Arizona, that the dogs would struggle on quantities higher or lower than that. And my thought was, because we always train on one and a quarter, the dogs only find one and a quarter. So when they asked me, can we not calibrate the dogs to only respond on certain amounts? I kind of thought this potentially does exist based on my experience of a training limitation that we recognized. And we would actually then train the dogs on various amounts when we got out to Arizona because we had a lot more flexibility on the amount of targets we were able to place out. Um, and this study actually demonstrates that that potential exists. So quantity is important. I also, um, if I recall correctly, and I was catching up with uh, your podcast yesterday on, on a long drive I was on, that there was a, a science highlight about potentially dogs can discriminate based on heat. Um, and 
that's not necessarily something we think about, but I know there has been research that dogs can detect variants in heat and discriminate one level of heat from another, or potentially they exi that exists because the nose is a, a thermosensor as well. So that was just a quick study I wanted to talk about. Um, and now I'll go into one of our projects, which involves discrimination. This project um, has been a few years in development. And the background is that down on the Gulf, this is an oil spill response project. Down on the Gulf Coast, and I'm in Texas, uh, about two hours from Corpus Christi, they have a lot of tar balls washed up. Now, tar balls are weathered oil that from natural seeps out at sea, and oil is seeping into the sea all the time uh, on the Gulf Coast and over in California particularly. Or it could be um, from ships dumping some oil out at sea, or it could be when they're being uh, refueled and some oil is spilled. But oil exists within the environment it ages out at sea, it gets washed up. And these tar balls can be anything from the size of your uh, little fingernail, or smaller, all the way up to several meters in size. And I go wow. down there every month doing surveys uh, for Texas General Land Office on the beaches, and we'll find anything from, the lowest number I've ever found is eight with my canine, um, and that includes buried tarballs. And the most we've found is over 1,600 in one survey. So, oh my gosh. Yeah, you can understand there's a lot of tar that's being washed up on the beaches. And I'm sure, you know, listeners will know if they've been on a beach, particularly in, in the Gulf Coast or California areas, that at the end of being on the beach, there might be little black spots on their feet or on the towel or something. And generally, that'll be tar um, or old oil that's washed up and it's within the environment. And it's absolutely natural. The problem is, if there's been a spill within the Gulf Coast, and I take my canine down, she doesn't know which is spilled oil, the fresh oil that's been washed up from an oil spill off offshore, or withered oil that naturally exists within the environment. So she's going to be responding on all of it. The issue there is obviously when you have 1,600 tarballs in a pretty small area, and it's not a huge area that we survey every month, that is a lot of time, it's a lot of effort, because you have to record it, data collect, etc., like I said. But also, that dog has to be rewarded or reinforced, even if that's praise or something, every time it has an example of a find. There has to be some sort of you know positive interaction and over right. the course of a day that is extremely tiring for the dog mm. on top of that the responsible party the people that had the oil spill have to pay for the responders to actually conduct the response they're not going to be happy if they find out i spend 80 percent of my day actually finding other people's oil, whether it's naturally washed up or ships that have dumped it or whatever. You know, they want to pay to clean up the oil they're responsible for. So that was a real issue, and that was raised by Texas General Land Office. You know, if you come down here, we, you're going to spend all your time just finding stuff that exists within the environment and not the stuff we're looking for. So, again, a discussion with Dr. Nathan Hall, we theorized that potentially you could train a dog to discriminate oil based on age. And 
uh, Texas General, General Land Office actually funded the research because they really would like canines to support oil spill response, but they couldn't support canines that are responding to all this naturally existing oils. And uh -huh. um, so the first phase was that Dr. Hall and his team, and it was uh, Dr. Mallory DeChant, actually conducted research at Texas Tech. They had some of my dogs and one of their own dogs um, that were green at the time. And they uh, imprinted the dogs to two fresher examples of oil, crude oil. And then they introduced uh, weathered crude oils to the dog. And they used an olfactometer, which is an automated computer-driven device that presents odors in a very particular way, but it's double blind. So the computer decides when and how it's um, presenting the odor. And the only way we know if the dog is correct, when the computer actually gives a beep and you reinforce it. So they introduced weathered oils as the discriminators, and the dogs did phenomenal. They very quickly could pick out the difference between fresher crude oil and aged or weathered crude oil, which, you know, to me was super um, interesting and actually surprising because crude oil is a complex odorant. It has a long hydrocarbon chain, particularly the type I use for imprinting early on, is a West Texas intermediate crude, and that has a very long hydrocarbon chain. And I was thinking, and that's one of the odors we train the dogs on, or uh, Dr. Hall and his team trained the dogs on, because it had the longest chain, so it, it would capture a lot of the other crude oils. Um, and I was surprised how easy it was for the dogs to actually learn, well, I only respond on a fresher example of crude oil, and I completely ignore the weathered examples. So they completed the research and said, yeah, you know, the results, there was one of the dogs, were, I, I want to say it was 100%, the others were well over 80 to 90% um, detection rates within the olfactometer differentiating between fresher oils and crude oils. So it was a really you know clear example that the dogs could discriminate. I then took one of those dogs that had been on the study and I took a green dog that I had and trained them in field survey. So taught them wide area search, quartering, questing, whatever you want to call it, off-leash detection. Um, I took the dog that Texas Tech had already trained with the olfactometer and I trained them on the carousel and odor stands and then out in the field and TADS using the training aid delivery devices because that's what we'd have to use on the beach. And then I also took the green dog and I developed a training program based on the lessons learned from Texas Tech and actually trained her um, through the processes of a dog trainer, if you like. So here's a green dog, train it to be this specific oil detection dogs. And that's what we call them in the end. Um, took the dogs down to Corpus, Corpus Christi, um, on two separate occasions. The first one, we went down for a couple of weeks, worked him along the beach, and not once did he give a response on any naturally occurring oils. No tar balls, no tar paddies. There was a tar paddy, which is a, a large tar ball. It was a good three feet by one foot in size, massive. And it was still, you know, it, it wasn't dry. It was a little wet inside, but it had tons of odor on it. The dog went, I got it on video. The dog went over, sniffed it, and carried on searching. 
Whereas when I worked my dog behind it, she obviously responded on this huge amount of oil, but also all the other examples of tar. So the discrimination of this canine was really um, interesting. It, it kind of shocked me a little. It was that good. And since then, we've conducted monthly surveys. The specific oil detection dogs go first. They've never once responded on any example of weathered oil, and they've always responded on the tags containing fresher oils. I then conduct a survey afterwards with my generalist oil detection dog, and she's, like I said, she's found anything from eight one month to one and a half, over one and a half thousand another month. Typically, we're looking at 100 to 300 uh, tarballs per survey that she'll find. So that level of discrimination just demonstrates the capability that the canines have when we've taken something with a complex array of, of odors, such as a long hydrocarbon chain, and just remove some of those hydrocarbons through weathering, that the dog can tell the difference very easily. Um, and be able to demonstrate in the field, more importantly, that it is able to conduct this discrimination outside of the lab environment. And I think that, again, is another important part of this research, is that, yes, potentially within a lab, you can have this absolute discrimination using an olfactometer, but when the dog goes onto a beach and it's real life and the presentations are being made and the oil's being heated by the sun and it's melting and it's giving off all these odors of hydrocarbon etc the dog still was able to discriminate so the actual applied phase really didn't, did dis discriminate just how incredible they are at being able to tell the difference based on age in this case yeah, that's absolutely fascinating and um, really, really encouraging, I think, to hear in a lot of ways. I mean, I love how we were able to grow to go from, okay, so we know that this is possible because it's a problem for us. So that example of C4 that you gave earlier to kind of confirming that in research to then saying, oh, so can we use this to our advantage to meet the needs of a specific client? That's, um, you know, it's just a nice nice clean progression for us um yeah what else what else do you have to say about that particular project yeah so that's ongoing um we actually completed the first year of research and it was 100 percent success the two dogs will survey a beach they will demonstrate they will not respond on natural weathered oils and then they'll only respond on presentations of fresh oils we do have a potential follow-on um period of training just to gather some more data but at the minute that's completing and it's been a complete success you know uh, there's no issue that that was a hundred percent success now we just have to wait for a real oil spill to demonstrate in real life but you know i i think we've got to a point where we can't prove anymore that those dogs can discriminate based on age of target um you know and that does exist clearly when we think about it in the conservation world, if you always train on old scat, then potentially your dog's not going to find fresh scat. Or if you always train on fresh, your dog may not locate age. So you do need to provide those uh, cross-the-board generalization um, examples 
if you need generalization based on age, but also it demonstrates if you want a specific age range of a target that the potential exists, that you can actually train the dog to discriminate the same target, but base it on age. Um, and it, again, that's something that I think is very powerful both as a learning tool that we have to understand that it could be a limitation in training if we don't plan for that, but also um, it could offer you an opportunity to conduct a specific detection project if someone was saying, well, I only need to find a certain thing that's of this age range. I don't need to find particularly old examples of this scat because then it's not worth me um, assessing for DNA or something. Right. Well, and I know when we were in Kenya, we had some conversations about there was interest in a project where um, they wanted to find the scat of lactating um, female bongos because there are problems in zoos with keeping um, baby bongos alive. So they were curious to see if they could find the scats of the lactating wild females and then look at any differences between the female, the wild females and the captive females. And, you know, anyway, and it was one of those things that the project kind of died in the discussion phase because of some behavioral characteristics of bongos that make it um, potentially really dangerous to have detection dogs out in their proper, um, in their property, in their territories, um, but is a great example of, you know, where we would want the dogs to be much more specific than um, kind of quote unquote normal um, versus then something I'm actually dealing with right now where Barley has worked on Puma scat in Guatemala and we are now about to head to um, the California coast to also be finding Puma scats. And, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get all of the samples that we need in order to give him a couple examples of California puma to make sure that he knows that, hey, we don't just want puma that eat scarlet macaws and howler monkeys. We're also interested in pumas that, you know, eat uh, cottontails and, uh, you know, whatever else the Californian pumas are eating. Um, so it's just there's so many examples of where this comes into play. And uh, I think it's something that is to be ignored at a practitioner's peril. Yeah, and it all goes back to that, you know, how important your training plan is and having this written and articulated in your training plan to ensure that you understand specifically what you're trying to, to achieve, but then you are putting um, protocols in place to actually achieve that goal. And of course, there are limitations, you know, that there's a case um, where you may not be able to get specific examples of your wild target, but at least if you start and do some generalization, which I'll talk about in a moment, then you can do the best you can based on what's presented in front of you, but you have to be doing the best you can, as we can see in the first place. Um, if you don't, then obviously you run the risk of selling yourself short, but more importantly, selling the canine short, because you're not giving that level of communication it needs. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's actually exactly what we're running into with our upcoming project is we just got our, our DNA results back from our training samples and none of our training samples came back as amplifiable Puma DNA. So mm. now, uh, you know, the question is, were they too old and degraded to come back as Puma? Um, and they still may or may not be useful as training samples or or not. So right now we're erring on the side of not training and hoping that Barley will be able to generalize. Um, you know, we've, and we've got some plans in the works to get some Californian Puma scats um, to Barley before uh, field work starts. But 
yeah, it's, I mean, I think that's always important to acknowledge that this, uh, we've got our perfect examples and our textbook examples, and then we do, you know, the best we can um, within that, so. Canine Conservationist is thrilled to offer a self-study online class for those interested in joining the field of conservation dog professionals. This course includes 18 modules of video lecture, assigned reading, homework, and quizzes. We have lectures from 10 amazing guest instructors, including fostering motivation and joy through high placement training with Laura Holder of Conservation Dogs Collective, safety training and assessments of dog teams with guests Fiona Jackson and Tracy Litton of Skylos Ecology, special considerations for insect and plant training samples with Arden Blumenthal of the New York, New Jersey Trail Conference, and building networks and acquiring clients with Paul Bunker. Our alumni group is active and supportive, and we welcome students of all levels and backgrounds. The course is priced at $750 with generous financial aid and discounts available for Patreon members. Learn more and sign up at canineconservationist.org slash class. Yeah, so then... Um Kind of transitioning into generalization then and you talk mm-hmm. about bongo bongo is one of the targets we're actually training some dogs on right now so the background is um i'm supporting working dogs for conservation on a project which will be going into lao um in asia and we're supporting the Saula Foundation. The Saula is a actually is a bovid. It looks to me, and I'm no expert in these things, kind of deer-like, um, but it is a bovid. It lives in the border region of Laos and Vietnam in the jungle environment. It was only discovered in the 90s, late 90s, as even existing. It was so remote and so rare. And it's estimated there may only be 50 examples of this species in existence. It's the most critically endangered uh, mammal in the world. And Working Dogs Conservation uh, were tasked by the Sauer Foundation to support a two-year project in trying to locate Sauer within its natural environment. And part of that project is canines. So we're currently training two canines, which will be going over to Lao in August with myself. We'll be training some local teams with those dogs. And then there's a two-year project within the jungle of Lao on the border to try and locate Sauer. So the issue is... There is no example of captive um, Saula in existence. Therefore, there is, and we're looking for scat. There's no scat. There is no target to train the dogs on. So what can we do then if we're going into a jungle environment looking for a species, but we have no target on which to train them on? Well, the decision was made um, to generalize, teach the dogs generalization of scat, and go into the environment and hope that when they encounter Sauler, that they will have enough um, interest and generalization to say, I found some scat, here we go. Um, For that reason, then, we are training the dogs here in Texas on a number of different similar odors from captive bred species. And there's been a number of zoos and um, foundations within the U.S. that have supported us. They've um, provided us uh, different examples of odor like bongo, kudo, sitatunga, gua. We've got bear. Um, bear do exist in the jungle area we'll be going to, although extremely rare. But the dogs could encounter bear. And it, it would be nice for the ecologists to actually know where and if bears exist with that environment. 
So we've got the, oh, an ANOA, we've got some ANOA scat. So we've got these different examples of scat. And the approach that I took was we trained the dogs on three samples first. So Sitatunga was the first one. We then trained them on Bongo and Kudo. So the dogs have been working on those three target odors, and then we're going to start placing out examples of other target odors that we've been provided, anoa, guar, bear, etc. But I'm not going to imprint the dogs specifically onto those targets. What we're going to do is have them in a field environment, in this case. When the dog encounters it, depending on its approach, what we're hoping is we get some sort of response which will be reinforced. If not, then it will be pay on sniff to reinforce. But basically, we wanted dogs to start to offer generalization themselves instead of us just imprinting the targets we have in the inventory, and then they end up with this array of targets that they've been imprinted on and they understand as reinforceable. So that step is a little different than potentially you would normally do because I'm trying to assess generalization of the dogs, purely because when we go to Lao, we're not going to be able to imprint them on target, and therefore I need that self-generalization of the dog, certainly enough that the handler can see something is going on and say, let's check this area out, if not a full response in generalization. Now, when we get to Lao, we are going to have other examples of um, bovids that live within the Lao environment and different animal uh, mammals that live there and they're scat. So we will be able to continue the generalization to some of the targets, one that they're going to be finding in the jungle. Um, like there is a wild pig, there's um, muntjac deer, there are bear, but they're very rare, etc. So we will be giving them examples of those types of odors as well. So the generalization process will actually go into theater, and it's like a four to six week training period. And part of that is in the jungle itself, just to see how they transition into the jungle environment and generalize. So in this case, obviously, we had a, a very difficult challenge to train on an odor which doesn't exist certainly within a captive bred or presentation to a canine capability, um, but potentially we're going to use generalization and the dog's ability to generalize to locate the target and actually reinforce that. Obviously, once our uh, scat has been located, then we can use it for imprinting, and then we'll just concentrate on the scat. We'll completely... Uh, wipe away the other odors, they will go from the inventory, and it will be 100% sour then, and then if the dog generalizes to other scat within the environment, fine. You know, it's not the end of the world, it doesn't exist in any great amount, it's certainly enough to maintain motivation of the dog, but also maintain generalization. Um, but then they would be concentrating on sour once we have some samples. Ooh, that's just so interesting. And that was kind of what, um, you know, I know I, I was having a, a discussion with someone, actually one of my potential grad school advisors a couple months ago about the Saula project. And they asked me, they were like, how do you think that they're doing this? There aren't Saulas to train on. Um, and, uh, you know, just kind of spitballing. This was more or less what I came up with. Um, although it sounds like y'all have come up with a much more elegant solution than, you know, what I came up with over coffee. Um, so... Have you done, um, 
kind of testing on the dog's preferences and propensities to generalize to help kind of narrow down which dogs you feel are a good fit for this project or kind of knowing, you know, I just, you know, we've talked about this before on the show with signal detection theory with Dr. Gadbois and also, you know, I know I've talked about this previously on the show with my two dogs. One of my dogs, Barley, is a very... Um, easy generalizer and my other dog Niffler tends to be much more specific and literal. So is that something you're looking at with the dogs that you're sending to Lao? Um, so one of them is liberal more than the other. Um, so, you know, that is a training consideration. And, you know, I, I listening to that same podcast, you know, about the conservative dog and the liberal dog, you Taking that into account means you adjust the training plan to to the individual dog, depending what you want. You know, if you want a dog to generalize, um, then that liberal dog is an ideal dog because it's going to chance its arm or its paw. At each example of Sky, it finds out that you're going to reward me. You're going to reward me. Whereas uh, the cons- uh, the conservative dog is uh, so pedantic that potentially it might say, nope, that's not exactly what I've been taught. And in that case, you really need to concentrate on a lot of generalization, knowing if you have a conservative dog, less so than a liberal dog, if you do want generalization. Um, So within the training plan, you know, that's taken into account. Now, we're only just starting the assessment of generalization right now. We've been working on the odors. We also have to train them to find snare because... uh, the local people go into the jungle and they place rows of snares out. So we want the dogs to be able to locate the snare but fringe it. So that's, again, something we've been working on at the minute. Um, We want that in place. And then um, pretty soon we're going to start the assessment of generalization. The two dogs I've picked, they're both spaniels, one a cocker, one a springer. Um, They both demonstrate that they are liberal dogs and it wasn't necessarily specific that I chose that um, because I was prepared to actually train generalization as needed but they're both kind of offering that that liberalization um, approach to actual training and we've started now mixing the target with distractors leaves sticks as I described earlier to get that um, to get that discrimination phase into them before we actually start the generalization outside. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense to me and uh, hopefully makes sense to everyone at home. Um, Gosh, I'm so excited to hear more about how this project progresses. And um, hopefully you're able to get some evidence of these Saula. So what um, what else would you like to say or circle back to or expand on as far as kind of discrimination and generalization for for dog teams? Yeah, I think, you know, like I've stressed a couple of times, planning in your training plan is critical. And if you don't plan for success, then you're planning for failure. And, you know, it's down to the the trainer, the handler, to actually understand the complexities of what they're presenting to the dog. If you're just using the same target day in, day out, then expect that you are training the dog to find the same target day in, day out. If you have opportunities to conduct generalization, unique generalization, then that's definitely what you need to do. Um, If you need generalization, vary your targets as much as possible. 
get them from different sources as much as possible, different ages as much as possible. You know, you need that broad spectrum of presentations for generalization. If you need discrimination, then you really work hard in ensuring that dog understands that odor profile in all its contexts, but it's only that one odor profile. And I think all this um, does underline how important your plan is in ensuring your dog understands what you're communicating to it because it, it can only react to what you're presenting to it. It can only react to what it understands is the target. And if you're not presenting the target correctly, it's not the dog's fault, you know. So um, plan and ensure your plan is rock solid. In that way, you can move forward with the dog, ensuring that it understands exactly what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, yeah, so I've got one kind of off the wall question to throw at you because it's one I've kind of thought about a little bit and I don't know if I've heard of an example um, being done for this. So for example, when, when we were in Guatemala, we were hoping to get the dogs to generalize to anything kind of in the, the carnivore umbrella. So we had trained the dogs on jaguar, ocelot, um, puma, gray fox uh and i think we had a couple tera samples and you know what we saw was barley was able to generalize to several samples that we thought were jagarundi margay um and then some smaller mustelids as well which was exactly what we were hoping to see um and just as we were kind of out and talking in the field um we were spitballing over what it would look like had we potentially wanted the dogs to find say all of those carnivores minus gray fox or something like that which maybe is a bad example because that's the only canid in that list but um you know that's where i feel like i start getting a little bit stuck now on generalization and discrimination is trying to think of times where you want the dog to be finding a relatively broad umbrella but minus one chunk um is that something you've done or something you've heard of people doing in the past um not immediately off the top of my head, but I would not um, worry if someone asked me to do that. I think because you can train then discrimination of, you know, you can generalize to these targets except this one. So ignore this one example. And by presenting that one example as a non-reinforceable target, I think you could train the dogs to discriminate that actually that isn't one of the targets that I generalize across. I don't see that as being an issue at all, unless, you know, the headspace is so close to the other species, which is something to consider. Um, and I think you and I have spoke about that when you was over in Africa, that, you know, as much as we, we want discrimination, the problem is if the target molecules the dog is using to detect its target exist within a similar species then that's going to be very difficult for the dog to discriminate and you know in some ways that's unfair for us to expect the dog to be able to discriminate because unless there's something that it's able to pick out and say no that is it or yes or you know that is no that is not it then it's it's very difficult now i think that if you have a target um, and let's say it's formed of molecules A, B, C, and D, you present that target, and then you present the same target, but it, the letter D is removed, so it's only A, B, C. I think that you could actually train the dog to only respond on a target when it includes this additional odor. 
Um, obviously, that I don't know if there's anything that exists that's proven that, but I think based on my experience with the hydrocarbon detection dog, the specific oil detection dog, and how they can actually discriminate the age of a hydrocarbon chain, I really think we're not tapping into that discrimination capability that potentially a dog could um, discriminate a target odor, which is missing one of those um, odors, which is what the specific oil dog does. It, you know, it finds a target which contains only one extra odor, comp or potentially, you know, one section of odor compared to the target that doesn't, which is exactly the same. It just doesn't contain a couple of extra odors. So I think the the principle exists, but without trying, mm -hmm. it's a difficult one to know. And I'm sure, you know, maybe it has been done. Maybe someone has researched that, but I can't think off the top of my head, you know, immediately of an example of it. Yeah, I can't either. And I mean, I think your approach makes sense to me and seems about what I would expect. And then, you know, again, we're always getting into those individual dog questions. I think, you know, I would be a little bit hesitant to put Barley on that project as my first dog because he is someone who is such a, he's so liberal. He's such a gambler. He loves to generalize. Um, but yeah, it seems like with good training, that shouldn't necessarily be an issue um and i also i haven't i kind of struggle to think of an example where that would be necessary where you would really want you know all carnivores minus x um to a degree where it would even necessarily be worth putting in that training time although i'm sure there's i'm sure there's an example that i just haven't thought of for that yeah, and again, the dog's an information tool, and if it gives a response and you walk over and look and say, that's not what we're looking for, carry on, you know, you've lost a few seconds of time compared to the amount of training you would have to do to make the dog ignore that one particular target. So, you know, you have to balance that as well. It's a team effort, and if the dog gives me information and I look at it and say, well, actually, that's not what we want, but okay, let's move on. Does that outweigh the amount of training time for the dog to never respond on that one target? Yeah, exactly. That, again, makes sense to me. And I think it's always intelligent to kind of think through that cost benefit and, you know, really question whether or not it is an issue. And, you know, uh, so um, Paul and I are recording on Monday. Our, um, we're having a cheetah discrimination episode that's coming out tomorrow, Tuesday. Um, so y'all will be hearing this before it comes out. But I've uh, now got a whole episode, Paul, coming out that talks about kind of the the problem that we ran into in Kenya with those dogs. And, you know, the advice I sought from you and Simon and um, then the approach we ended up taking and how that ended up going for us. And we ended up basically uh, to, I guess, now reverse spoil it because people will be hearing this after um after you and I are talking about this now, um, was that I, uh, my main suspicion became that actually the alert was being overemphasized for these dogs. Um, and we went on kind of a, a path of extinction, getting them to learn that alerting didn't lead to them getting any information or reward or anything, which I think was more or less one of the approaches that you had suggested to me. It was just to wait out those false alerts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, you know, that's generally the approach I will use uh, in certain circumstances, but I think I like the dog to solve the problem, not for me to tell them what the solution is. And I think 
you know, the dogs understand a lot more of the um, background as to why they're ignoring something. If they've worked out, it's not worth responding to. So Right, right. Well, and what we really, what I really kind of started getting watching the video of these dogs was that it seemed to me that what was happening is they were going out into the scent room and there was always cheetah and there was always, you know, it was either caracal or leopard that they were mostly struggling with. Um, and basically if the dogs alerted to caracal or leopard, they were immediately being told whether or not they were correct. So it basically became an easier and faster and more kind of expedient exercise for them to alert to whatever it was they found first. And then they would either get their reward if they were right, or they would be told where to go next. And it wasn't necessarily a difficult detection task. Um, so they didn't really lose anything by making a false alert. Um, yeah. And there's, there's a, a, a really good video that I'll, I'll be sure to link in the show notes where you can actually see one of the dogs um, as we're waiting out one of her false alerts, like kind of try to alert harder, tried to alert more perfectly, kind of look around a little bit and then re-examine, re-sniff that scat and then get up and just immediately go and find the correct scat. Um, and it was just a really nice example. You can almost see the thought process <laughs> going across her forehead of like, oh, maybe this, huh, no, I guess not, you know? Um, now, obviously we can't say for sure that's what it was, but it, that's sure what it looks like in the video. I have seen that more than once that, you know, the feedback from the trainer handler is too quick. So the dog learns, well, I'll throw a sit here and you'll tell me if I'm right or wrong and I'll move to the next one. You'll tell me I'll move to the next one. You don't tell me I'm right. Okay, I'm getting my reward. And I had it on the olfactometer that we had a Labrador. She worked out very quickly. The dogs have to hold their nose in a paw for four seconds. And there's three paws. And she learned very quickly. There's no consequence to holding your nose in a paw for four seconds during training. So she would just walk up to the first one, hold her nose four seconds. There's no bleep correct. She would move to the next one. And she would move down the line until she got a correct bleep and she would get a reward. Um, because she learned, you know, just respond until you tell me I'm right or wrong. Yeah, because um, four seconds is not long. You know, it's it's not a huge loss. That makes sense. I would probably do the same thing if I was a dog. <laughs> yeah, as soon as we added a consequence of a tone which said you're incorrect, and the the game then finished and the dog received no reward, she stopped that mm. behavior because now she knows. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, if I false response but if i give a response which isn't correct you're going to end the game and the cheese disappears i'm not willing to risk that and that cleared right. up that behavior very quick but yeah exactly as you said when you give the dog feedback too quick you are actually training the dog to actually just respond on everything and wait for you to guide it until it gets to the correct target absolutely yeah and one of the other things that we saw with these dogs is that they had um, they a lot of the handlers had gotten a lot of really excellent mentorship from explosives dogs folks and they were really focused on these very snappy very kind of social media ready alerts that make a lot of sense as a necessity for explosives dogs um, and one of the things that we saw as well was that in these these training scenarios the dogs might search for 20 minutes source a pretty challenging puzzle and then get there and if their alert wasn't kind of perfectly square to the target and they weren't perfectly focused staring at the target their reward would be withheld um, until that alert was fixed so the dogs were really learning this lesson over and over and over that the alert was the most important part of the search and i think all of those things kind of came together um 
you know, and I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting a really good alert on your dogs, but it seemed like the, the, there was a little bit of a, ba- a balance issue in some of their training programs that in my mind was part of the, part of the problem there. Yeah. Again, I've seen it, you know, and I want to say it was Simon Prince and I had, um, a discussion on a Facebook group or something once where I think he'd asked what's more important, the response or the hunt, the search, you know, and uh, my um, take on it was actually the hunt because as soon as I see a change in behavior of any type, I'm going to call it. And the dog doesn't have to give a beautiful sit. And in fact, in Canada, we are in one day, I had 183 fines. That is 183 responses. And by, by lunchtime, my dog is not giving me a classic sit. You know, it's changing behavior. It's, it's something that I can say there's something here and that's enough for me. I don't expect that full nice response out in the field on a long day and they were covering 20 miles a day um but i do need that dog to hunt all day because if it's not going to hunt i'm not going to see a change in behavior because it hasn't you know it doesn't do anything when it hits the odor so to me hunt is important as long as there is a change in behavior i can read that identify that i can identify and say there's something here if that's not a full-on sit response so be it you know that's my job as the handler to read my dog and the information it's giving me and that's the approach i take yeah yeah i mean i uh i certainly don't disagree and it's been something that has been a really good reminder for myself as i'm working through with a a younger greener dog um as well and as i'm moving more and more into mentorship and, and then there's always that balance of i do still want the dog to have some sort of alert behavior, um, particularly if that dog is going to be paired with a less experienced handler. Um, we have a lot of students in our mentoring group who have a little bit more of an informal alert or kind of a look back sort of alert. Um, and I've had a lot of kind of going back with my less experienced students on whether or not that is actually the, the wisest choice of an alert for them and their dog, because if they're not really, really skilled at reading the dog and then the dog's alert is something that to me, a look back alert is very ambiguous in a lot of cases. You know, is that really what we want to be um, pushing the dog towards? Um, or, you know, in training, should we set up something that is clearer? And that way, if that, if and when that degrades out in the real world, we still have something that is a little bit better to read. Again, especially if we're working with kind of a less experienced handler. Yeah, I know that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Well, Paul, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I mean, I would love to, but um, we should both get back to our days. Is there anything else you wanted to circle back to or explore, uh, expand upon or explore within kind of this broader topic? No, I think, you know, we've covered a lot of information um, and I think we've stressed the importance of people taking into consideration either discrimination and or generalization and how important it is to plan um, and build in that plan and execute your plan. So hopefully uh, the listeners got something from it. And as always, I'm open to questions if people need to discuss it further. But I know we covered a, a broad spectrum on discrimination and generalization. 
Yes, we definitely did. And I know I'm going to be trying to compile all of my notes in between this recording and um, the end of this discrimination miniseries to put out a bit of a Q&A summary episode. Um, but I really hope people found this useful. And if anyone has any questions, clarifying thoughts, anything like that, um, I hope they feel really welcome to reach out to me or any of our guests um, to explore this topic more um, and more deeply. Um, so, Paul, where can people find you if they're interested in staying abreast? of all of your really exciting projects um so a lot now i post on instagram shiron k9 on instagram um i do copy some of those posts across the, the shiron k9 facebook but not so much instagram now is my main source i have a website www.shiron c-h-i-r-o-n dash k9.com and the study paper the research papers that i spoke about they're hosted on there as well as well as others that i've been involved with um and then email paul at chiron c-h-i-r-o-n dash k the number nine dot com Excellent. And for everyone at home, I hope that by now you all know you can find us at canineconservationists.org, where you can find all of these episodes, AI-generated transcripts, show notes, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. Join our courses and find our webinars, again, at canineconservationists.org. So we'll be back in your beds next week. Bye.